This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. And with me, as always, is Maxwell Bogue. Hey, Joris. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm great. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Who do we have on the pod today? Well, today we've got Dr. Jason Jones, uh, and he is uh, a key researcher and developer of uh, well, hybrid three uh, D printing technology. So, a hybrid technology is when well, additive and subtractive manufacturing work in concert. We haven't talked a little bit about that, but uh, it's 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 something that's an underappreciated area with a lot of potential in certain applications. And uh, so, uh, yeah, and, and Jason's a, really one of the biggest experts on hybrid manufacturing in the world, and he's been researching it for for uh, many many years now. So, uh, yeah, welcome to the three D Pod, Jason. Thank you so much, so much, Max and Joris. Great to be with you. Yeah, what what is hybrid uh, manufacturing? Our idea is that we're trying to bring additive together. So often when we talk about, you know, 3D printing, the actual workflow of printing something is a critical right value add step, but frequently there's lots of steps after that. And so for us, hybrid's about trying to get finished parts done in a single setup or, or, you know, at least in a single cell. So bringing together often subtractive and inspection and other techniques to really create the full suite of what you need to get to finished parts. So it's it's all inclusive. Like when I, the idea being that I hit the go button on a machine, and then I wait x amount of time, and then when it goes ding, I'm done. It's it's truly finished. Like I could then just pick the piece out, ship it to the end consumer, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. And and just cool. just to check, just on the, on the terminology, if I would be a lot of additive is doing this in basically two different machines. Would you be considering that hybrid manufacturing? Is that not hybrid? Is it does it have to be like one machine or one cell or one kind of unit? So we're the first that took directed energy deposition and material extrusion commercial in a hybrid format going back about a decade ago. And so we launched with the term hybrid manufacturing because to us, it was the digital linkage and and automation that makes it different than a hybrid workflow where, yes, you use multiple machines and they're all around the shop and, you know, you you basically take apart from an additive to a, a subtractive machine and then on to inspection. So from our side, people talk about hybrid and often claim hybrid manufacturing. And I can't disagree with the use of the word hybrid. But for us, when we launched, our intent was to convey being able to fully automate that loop in contrast to doing it manually. Because otherwise, Mm. everything you do in your garage ends up being hybrid, right? Yeah. So I have a three-in-one in my office, for example, that's a CNC 3D printer and a laser. But I do have to switch the print heads and all that. But is that kind of more what you're you're interested in and achieving is these machines that are multifunctional as well? Yeah, so that's a hybrid machine to me for sure. Okay. To fully automate a part that may, for example, need some printing and then some machining and also maybe laser marking at the end. Our, because our intent has been to be able to provide this in industrial scale, automating mm. between all those steps has been core to our focus. And, and so do you have machines that are available or is this still in its, um, I mean, you've been doing this for a decade, you said so. Um, yeah, commercially for a decade. Oh, okay. So my, okay. Yeah, my research work goes back, you know, five or seven years before that. One thing is, okay, what are the, because the, the skeptic in me is saying, wait a minute, aren't we doing a very expensive 
or are we doing a very inexpensive operation in a very cheap machine or like, you know, or, or are we doing like a very uh, cheap operation in a very expensive machine, right? By, by, is it cheaper to separate it or what are the advantages of doing it like in one, one cell? Let's say? So every application, you have to look at the balance of activities and your argument certainly holds and there are some things that we never envisage being merged, right? Where you will do them in separate machines. And an example of that is if you've got a print time that's 12 hours and then there's very little finishing on it, it probably makes sense to leave those alone, right? Mm -hmm. um, if in contrast, you've got operations that are pretty short, a lot of our focus is printing a little bit of metal onto an existing part. So mm -hmm. if your deposition time is 90 seconds, then your finish time might be you know, two minutes. You could then have those merged together and have an inspection step. And we do that regularly. Mm -hmm. So directed energy deposition, deposit, let's suppose, you know, a hard edge around you know, a piece of tooling or uh, something like that. Then you finish it to the final shape. And then we do eddy current or laser scanning or ultrasound inspection. So you know the part's good and it really compresses the post-processing. So it, it, just so I get this, tooling is near and dear to my heart. But I have a broken piece of tooling, let's say, and I, or, a, you know, it's worn. So I go and I do some metal uh, deposition on it. And then this, can I then overdo it and then spark erode it as well with a different tool head, so to speak, and then have like a buffing tool come in and buff it and then laser scan it. And then my, my tool is all set because this is still like a short, maybe it's an hour long process, so to speak. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't know. And just to level set, probably for everybody's benefit, if we look at actual costs to print things, right, to get to finished printed parts, the printing step, and let's take metal powder bed fusion, for example, often the printing is only about half of the cost. And every part's a little different, right? So you could argue 40%, but in safety critical stuff, frequently the post-processing steps, including finishing and inspection, cost more than the printing step. Mm-hmm. So right. when you step back and look at my total cost of ownership, if I'm going to do, you know, metals or very dense materials, even ceramics, things that require multiple steps, when we talk about printing, we may only be talking about a third to half the cost. So the focus of being able to automate those downstream steps becomes a very significant bottleneck. It's not as if we're trying to optimize the last 5%. We're trying to optimize half. Of what's going on. It's, it's interesting that this hasn't been somebody, nobody's, well, people are doing this for powder bed fusion. In powder bed fusion, you spend like two thirds of the time doing nothing and a third of the time, or two thirds of the time, let's say, recoding, right? So if you could <laughs> do it in line with the recoding or in line with the, the other steps, it actually could even maybe even save more time. Absolutely. But, but okay, so, so, so you've been working on this for a long time. And is it like, okay, so the one application that I've heard that really, really makes a difference, where I've heard from practitioners and people that really makes a difference, these kind of hybrid technologies is, is in conformal cooling and molds and that kind of thing. Could you explain us for those kind of applications, why this is, this is so exciting or interesting? Absolutely. So surface finish, you know, additive techniques for the most part don't achieve surface finishes that we're used to in manufacturing. And we use as benchmarks if you're molding, right? You tend to be forcing particularly polymer or sometimes die casting into a mold under pressure and you get a really nice surface depending on, you know, assuming you've prepared the surface of the mold well. In contrast, if it's a, you know, a digitally made part, frequently you're machining and we're getting surface finishes or grinding, right? You get surface finishes that are really good. And for many of the 3D printing technologies, they just don't, they're often an order of magnitude different. 
than what we're used to. So interchangeable parts and all the industrial revolution kind of thinking of, hey, suddenly now we can distribute manufacturing and all that kind of thing. Additive doesn't fulfill that as printed for many geometries and parts mm-hmm. right now. And are you making this closer for, well, besides like molds and, and conformal cooling for molds, what are the other applications that you're, that you're excited about that's in your area? We look at the whole spectrum. And if you start from a traditional 3D printing mindset, you say, I'm going to print from scratch. You're like, mm-hmm. great. Yes. Does that work in a hybrid context? Yes. But I would say that is less frequently the focus application. Most of the time, we're at the other end of the spectrum where we say, hey, I'm going to build, I'm going to grow a feature onto this. Mm-hmm. And we have a really interesting, uh, where one of our facilities is there's a lot of automotive work. They were developing brake calipers for a very high-end automobile, and they were getting some resonance, right? Some, some noise and other undesirable vibration. And they said, hey, you guys can add metal, right? And we said, absolutely. So rather than go back and change the casting pattern and go through a many-week cycle, they brought us in these brake calipers, super high-end brake calipers, and said, could you add some mass here? And so we did. We added it, printed it, and then finished it. And then they were able to go back, and, and they went through multiple iterations and tuned these brake calipers to perform just like they wanted them to, and were able to do it over a matter of days instead of what would have been months. And the exciting thing, of course, is with, well, depending on the DED technology and the material, of course, you can fuse this as if it's the, the original material, right? Or it, it adheres in a way that, that it could become kind of akin to or alike or in tune with the original material, right? Yes, it's a full metallurgical bond. And if you're working on cast parts in this particular example, what we deposit is always a higher quality. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're somewhere around rot typically with DED. Mm-hmm. And why do you do that? What's the, what's the reason? Or well, when you say, why do we do it? Why do we do DED? Why do you deposit a higher quality uh, material? <laughs> because you're, you've got a local deposition area, and so your cooling rate is much faster. So your control over both composition and microstructure is usually better than if you've got a very large cast part, and the whole thing solidifies more slowly over time. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. And of course, the big business case for this is, is okay, this brake caliper example seems rather niche, but... Um, the big business case for this is turbine blisks and, and just turbines generally and just rejuvenation of moles and rejuvenation of turbines, right? And that's actually like a huge application that doesn't get a lot of press and doesn't get a lot of understanding, really. And repair and remanufacturing is our bread and butter. And if we talk about hybrid machines where you can interchange multiple technologies in a single setup, mm-hmm. that is a killer application for these machines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because turbines are in absolutely everything, right? And it's amazing where they are that you don't think of, right? Even to the point of impellers and other things in turbocharged diesel engines, you're like, actually, wow, this technology really has permeated a large proportion of our, our lives. Yeah. And, and, do you, do you, and when does it make sense to rejuvenate like a mold or an impeller or something? Does it have to be really expensive? You know, do you have any kind of you know, view on, on like, like how expensive the part has to be for that to make sense or something like that? Yeah, generally, most of the stuff we work on has a value above 100 of whatever currency you're using, dollars, pounds, euros, something like that. Mm-hmm. It just, by the time you handle it and get it into its digital format, normally you want to be doing something that's worth a hundred bucks or more and mm-hmm. ideally multiples of them. Okay. Cause that, that, that actually like in our world isn't like, that sounds really quite inexpensive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, do you mean, wait, sorry. <laughs> when you say a hundred, do you mean that the output product is valued at a hundred or more? Or do you mean like that, the like, let's say it's tooling, like the, but the object itself that you're adding to is valued at $100 or more. Yeah, usually it's cost to produce. Cost to produce. Okay. Yeah. 
Yep. Because in the powder diffusion world, that'll get you a really nice key change, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's like, uh, okay, with the finishing, right? Um, Best key change ever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <Or> pen, yeah. <laughs> but as we intermingle with parts that are produced in large volumes through casting, then $100 casting may be, you know, quite a different perspective depending on where you come from in the manufacturing world. No, I'll like a car person for a car person. It's <laughs> just like ridiculous and they'll, they'll fight you tooth and nail uh, on that kind of thing. It depends, of course, who you are as well. Yeah, definitely. And, and what kind of parts are there? We've talked already about uh, turbine blisks and impellers and stuff like that. Is there a particular industries? Is this an aerospace thing or is it power gen and aerospace or is it just much, much broader than that? It is much broader. We started in energy right? Power generation, because we wanted to kind of ramp up to the quality and you know, stringent level of, of aerospace, and then naturally went on to aerospace. And this has been certified with, you know, on GE blades and other things. Some interesting aspects of this is that as we have gotten close to these applications, the request will frequently come up, okay, now you can add and subtract in the same setup. Can you also do the inspection step? Mm. Particularly with blades, holding them is not so easy. Right. So the fixturing and how you hold them is part of the effort that the operator has to go through to get these things ready. And once you've fixtured them, if you can continue to do multiple operate, you know, additional operations without having to refixture them, you're in a, even if it's a quick release, you know, uh, changeover type style tooling, not having to do that drives value. So mm-hmm. there's been lots of requests that says, hey, we normally would then use ultrasound to inspect these. Can you do that in the same setup? And the answer is absolutely. Mm-hmm. So can, you can you can switch tool heads or whatever to go do a laser or an ultrasound inspection, see an error, and then can you go back? Can it automatically go? Oh, I I need more material there, and then grab the right tool head to add material, add material, do whatever removal process to make it smooth, and then scan again. Like, can you just sit yes. there and the machine will just keep doing that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that ability now exists. It's real. <laughs> it's live. It exists in. You know, probably hundreds of machines now around the world. Oh, wow. Okay. The software handling to do that is normally developed to that maturity that you've just described only where you've got serial production, where they're like, here's a very narrow set of geometries, right? It might be a family of parts in different sizes. Blades are, you know, clearly a, a good example in this case. And they say, this is what we expect. Here's the signal we expect back. And if you're outside of this, then, you know, either stop and flag it up to the operator or select from these different repair strategies and go back and do it. And I like that because also like if you look at like closed loop control and just the monitoring itself, a lot of times, like a lot of times the powder bed fusion people kind of like to think of kind of DED is kind of like the kind of inferior technology. But especially right. in that kind of thing, you see a lot of more progress often in, in powder bed fusion than the like, really scary black box at your powder bed fusion machine. You'll see a lot more progress in like DED and stuff like that. Well, I always compare... I, I love powder bed fusion, right? This is not a comment at all to disparage it. It's fantastic. And it's so good at geometric complexity, especially internal geometric complexity. That's largely where it, it gravitates to in terms of applications. It's not as easily adopted to varying the composition of your part, which is where DED shines. And also in a powder bed context, because you're surrounded by powder, it's difficult to integrate other technologies. Right, it's the most extreme example of difficult to integrate. So for us in a DED environment, where then you're like, hey, I want to do these other types of inspection, you can literally swap heads, you have access to the part. And rather than trying to validate a new technology with a new validation approach, which is what in-process monitoring often is, 
you say, I'm going to validate this part with a val, you know, a a very mature, robust set of non-destructive inspection techniques that has a 50 or 70 or 100 year history, right? Or at least a 60 or 71 in an automated sense. And then on top of that, I think I think the interesting thing is that from an implementation standpoint, you can put this D&D head on a robot arm or maybe an existing CNC machine already. So you can integrate it with existing equipment or an existing line or that kind of setup, right? Or gantry or that kind of thing, right? Yeah, we launched originally as a retrofit business. Mm-hmm. Our intent was only to develop heads and the ancillary devices to allow you to retrofit this to CNC machines. And, and the root of that, I can just tell you the story. I was at uh, De Montfort University in the UK. We saved up lots of money and wrote, you know, petitioned for a grant. This is the typical thing that academic researchers do. And we finally got a machine that was an added machine in. And it was a beautiful machine. It had an amazing motion control system on it, linear motors. It was wonderful. But ultimately, what we really needed was a patented deposition head that was probably worth 20 grand. And we had paid, you know, an order of magnitude or two more than that to get to this system. And I thought, I looked around the lab and I said, we have like 10 motion platforms already. What we've just bought is a patented head, which we're happy to pay for. But we've also then duplicated another motion platform. Why can't we just get the head and add it to an existing motion platform like a CNC machine, which of course we had one there, that it's built in larger volumes and you get better economy of scale. And that was kind of the crux of this realization. Can you add additive to CNC machines and grinders and other things? Mm-hmm. And now has that been like, that was your, your key business. And then why at one point did you say, okay, wait a minute, we're going to move to the making into to doing robot arms and more different things and stuff like that. At the same time, we had a dialogue. This is as we launched the business, right? Are we going to build a single machine? And the answer was, whatever machine we build, it's going to be the wrong size for other applications. So if we can leverage existing motion platforms, the application drives the platform, both in terms of its size and its rigidity and accuracy and dynamic motion requirements. So we said, let's just make it flexible. And I can tell you one other story. The, The real ability to make it flexible was driven out of a need. We, as, again, as academic researchers, we pitched this idea to a variety of companies. Everybody was gung-ho and excited. And we had sort of earmarked this company to offer their CNC machine as the first guinea pig to be retrofit. And as we got into the detail of it, the utility of that machine at that company, they were nervous we would compromise it. And so they withdrew their willingness to let us retrofit on their CNC machine. And so we were in this, pro- we had gotten a, a project that was partially funded through a competitive research bid, but we had no candidate CNC machine to put it onto. And that started, you know, that became evident like month three of what was supposed to be a three-year project. So we started scouting around to, we asked everybody in the consortium if they were willing, we, you know, we, we did everything. We, we asked every machine tool builder we could. And as soon as they found out that it involved lasers and metal powder, they're like, mm, sorry, we're out. So in the end, what we did is we took the CNC machine that we had in the lab. We sold it. We sold most of it. We actually kept a few parts so that it could transition on the books as as some of the original. But we sold it and bought the components in to rebuild an old machine. But do it with a new controller on it so that we could integrate everything all together. And so that was what happened. But we were in this dilemma stage for nearly two years. We, you know, we get a candidate machine that was almost going to go forward and then it wouldn't. So we started to design around each candidate machine. And by the time we were done, we had designed for several different models 
called machine, thinking that that would be the machine. That by the end, we had designed something that was modular enough it could go on anything. That's cool. But that was like, essentially kind of by mistake, kind of. Right. <laughs> it was in an act of necessity. It really was. But when we had finished, we knew that we had something that would work on any, any motion platform. And now we have literally fit a whole range of machines. Our most common machines are vertical CNC machines. Mm-hmm. But we've done parallel kinematic machines that, have, that are on tracks that are you know, 60 feet long. We've done robot arms. We've done coordinated robots where you've got multiple robots in the same space working at the same time. We've done gantries. We've done horizontal mill turns. We've done grinders. We, I mean, literally, if you look at our company's world firsts, we were the world first to do hybrid variations on mainstream machine tools, gantries. Uh, obviously, robots was already a thing. But there's a very wide footprint in terms of what format you can have this in. And when did you go from being a research project? This is a research project that, because it was so, because it was so problematic, it ended up becoming modular and 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 something that you could shoehorn into to a lot of different platforms. And when did you decide? You know what? This is a business. Twenty twelve. Mm-hmm. And what made I you? Actually, I was I did my PhD along the course of this research, right? In, in the same time, I was a senior research fellow at De Montfort University, and so I had started looking for a job uh, as. I actually did a lot of work on electrophotography or, or you know, what we would call laser printing in common vernacular and how to scale it up for 3D. I'd approach Xerox. Um, that, that foundational work has now become Evolve Additive. But at the time, the market wasn't ready to invest big in that scale of research. But we had this hybrid concept and it was maturing and technically we got it to work. The project was originally scheduled to be three years. We stretched it to nearly four to, to finish it. But by 2011, it was super clear. Technically, this worked. We, there was no limitation on the physics. And it was just purely how do you implement it and refine it to make it robust and reliable. And so when you first started out, you guys were selling just the heads, essentially? Correct. To go on to motion. Oh, interesting. Yep. And we had shopped it around. So the research began sort of 2007-ish. And we shopped it around to a bunch of machine tool builders at that time. And they, you know, metal additive was so nascent. It was so early on that they didn't even think metal additive, it just wasn't on their radar. And they didn't, it it just wasn't that interesting. But by the time we got to 2013, we had multiple machine tool builders approach us. And in fact, DMG Mori is probably the best known for their hybrid machine. They approached us in 2011. We had multiple dialogues. In the end, they launched something that wasn't our solution. Um, But this was the beginning of the hybrid days, right? So we, we partnered with a company called Hamel and built a machine that was aimed at blade repair and, and rejuvenation. We launched it at Emo, which is Europe's largest machine tool show, and took away first, you know, first prize for innovation. And that was very exciting. And that, that was the beginning, the very first, if you will, DED on mainstream machine tools. And, and, and since then, you've also come up with like a core kind of module. What's that? What does that actually do? So what we found is we first did the heads and we used a conventional PLC, right? We started on Siemens. And, um, but a normal PLC doesn't, especially back then, but even now, it doesn't handle data very elegantly, especially not when you're trying to do camera monitoring and capture images on the fly and do analysis. It just doesn't work. And so we migrated to an edge computing solution that had a a real-time PLC built into a a, a Windows environment. And what that allows us to do is do a whole bunch of analysis on the fly 
And so we now will sell a, a package that is deposition heads and laser chillers, sort of you know ancillary stuff, but also this Ambit Core, which is our data solution. And it manages the additive and also any of the inspection technologies that you want to integrate. How much do these products go for? Like how much is a, an ambient head? Most of the time when people buy into a package, you know, yeah. they're over a hundred grand. Okay. So individual heads themselves are often in the you know, 25 grand ish sort of range, but you'll amalgamate that and add the data package and all that. And that's kind of where your starting point is. And some of them, as you get in, we've sold systems that do, uh, you know, six and seven and eight heads, and those are closer to half a million. But and you're like, ooh, you know, that's kind of the. But these are, these are going on really expensive machines at the end of the day, right? Like you're. They, they you're, often are, but also you have to look at what they're displacing. If you're displacing a, a dedicated directed energy deposition machine, and a high end CNC machine, and you're able to get volumetric inspection data out of it on the fly, you've replaced at least three items that are often half a million or more each. And, and, and so how did you guys manage to grow the business? Because you, you, you didn't go this, well, you didn't seem to have gone maybe under the radar, maybe, but you didn't seem to go the standard, like kind of startup route with like, let's give us lots of VC funding and blow, blow up or right? something like that. It's true. Our vision of where our core value is, is the ability not just to do additive and a little bit of subtractive. It's really in this suite of heads. And if you go to our website, you look at all the heads and people are like, really? Do you need all those heads? And, and the answer is every one of those heads has only been built for a customer need that's begged us for months or years to build it. And so it's bringing them all together as a suite that we think has its true value. So you're absolutely right. We didn't go the normal VC funding route because we couldn't convince anybody that we could pull it off. <laughs> That, that's the candid truth, right? They're like, yeah, no, no. I, I had a similar problem. So I understand yeah, where you're coming from. They're like, you're crazy. And we have people who come to us now and they're like, wait, wait, wait. So you do ultrasound inspection volumetrically through the whole thickness of the part? Yes. And you do that in the same setup that you can do deposition in? Yes. And wait, you can deposit metal and polymer in the same part? Yes. And it, it just, it has never even been a consideration for most people. Well, and and yet, that's where we see the future. Yeah, well, what's interesting is one of the, my kind of things I keep repeating, just to like maybe scare people a little bit, but is the idea that since, especially in powder fusion, but also in other processes, since we're building up each part uniquely, we may, and they have different properties depending on where they are, where they are in the powder bed, the orientation, uh, residual heat from other stuff, all this. Um, you know, the idea is that we might have to individually inspect all these parts. Like from a QA perspective, we might have to actually scan each part or CT every part. Um, because they're all unique, right? Yep. And I see, I see this as a problem, but for you guys, it seems like you've already at least partially or maybe even entirely, depending on the application, have dealt with this already. Every inspection technique has a strength, right? Pros and cons. Every additive technique has pros and cons. For us, it's only in combining them all together or at least providing them in a universally interchangeable solution, which is really what we've done, right? We've modularized a whole bunch of stuff. And then put the data and control side together that allows you to on the fly change to whatever you want. But it's only in bringing those all together that you have this potential. I mean, my view is, and I love this word, nichiness, right? This is uh, a Pete Zielinski comment. The additive is often quite niche or, or fills like little narrow channels. To me, it's only in bringing together lots of niches that you can get to a mainstream solution. I think it's interesting. You've also got extrusion heads, right? So that's... 
is that an extrusion? That's not an extrusion head in a DED sense, right? That's a different technology, right? right. Yeah, it's a different set of physics. It's it's a pellet-fed screw extruder for for metal or for, for, for polymer for polymer, for polymer composites. Ah, oh, okay. so I could just Wait load a in like a, a bag of polymer. It'll screw fit it in like an injection molding machine. <laughs> yeah. You decided, yeah, our, our approach again was on the side. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Our yeah. approach on this was how do you make it modular? And if you look at a screw driven extruder, they're big and they're long yeah. and yeah. they're heavy. And so we said the only way this will work, at least in a machine tool environment, a standard machine tool environment, is if we use the spindle as the, the energy source. So that's what we did, right? That's our patented approach. And if you use the spindle to drive that screw, you get an ex- incredibly sophisticated, powerful motor to drive your screw. And suddenly your output's, you know, 2,000 times what a desktop machine does. Okay. And you have a lot of control, presumably, as well. Yeah, absolutely. And to the degree you can interface with that CNC control, you get to something that, I mean, pound for pound, you know, we'll, we'll put out 10 pounds, 20 pounds an hour out of these smaller extruders because they're powered by the a CNC spindle. Uh, we're, we're, we're talking about like uh, just a polymer with like short carbon fiber. Yep, or short, short, exactly. Short chopped fiber, carbon, glass, whatever you want. Bamboo, doesn't matter. I like bamboo, by the way, especially for aerospace and stuff like that. I love uh, it's kind of like more, uh, you know, more or more end of life, uh, nice kind of uh, polymer structures. Yeah. I really like the idea of that. And what are the applications for that? Are we seeing what kind of parts are people making with that, that, that extrusion stuff? So at the earliest stage, it's, hey, you're, you, know, you run a CNC machine already. What sort of jigs and fixtures and holding devices do you want to be able to produce quickly and easily? So that's one strand, right? The normal machine tool environment. At the complete other extreme is, in fact, there was a part that just came out. It's a smart bridge. It's a project through that we supported Autodesk on and DAR, and they've embedded sensors as they've gone, and they've done it in a hybrid way. So it requires additive, subtractive, and sensor embedding. And it's a smart bridge that literally senses people as they walk across it. Is, is this the one in the Netherlands that they did across a, so a canal? There's no, a couple in the Netherlands, but this is one that's just been released. It was built in the UK. It'll be on display in Dubai in a couple of weeks. Level of intelligence in it that we've never, I've never seen in a bridge. It, to me, it's the, the largest smart product that I've does ever seen. Just out of curiosity, does that mean like it senses someone walking, so it does a damping effect to like reduce the bridge's shaking or something of that nature? Or well, it it's more a generatively like, designed people. Yeah, oh, it, oh, it makes energy. It's a generatively designed bridge, and they're seeking to use the least amount of material in it, right? Mm-hmm. And so with all of these generatively designed parts, our experience is you take what normally is a huge factor of safety and you start to shrink it. <laughs> and so <laughs> this is a, you know, a self-monitoring device that knows when it's safe or when it needs to be out of service or when it's time to retire. And there's a, several sort of strands of how the data will be used. But to me, ultimately, anything, you know, we, ha- we experience pain in our bodies to prevent us from, you know, causing more damage. And I think as we look toward smart products of the future, we would hope that all of those things who, that support people's lives, right, that have safety critical natures would be self-monitoring. I think that kind of stuff is really, really exciting. I mean, I think especially if making you, if you can make that kind of sensors possible, or if you could retrofit that kind of sensors to, or or put it on repair parts, because the inventory of concrete bridges and concrete structures that are 
permeated our world built like, you know, in these building booms in the fifties and stuff, you know, these guys are, these things are crumbling all in the United States. Many of them are crumbling. There's, there's a lot of infrastructure that needs to be replaced. So I think that replacing infrastructure is this huge thing that people are, are, are not paying enough attention to, I think. Well, and, and sometimes you can add retrospectively, right? Capabilities to existing things. And other times you want to actually design them in. And to me, that's what a hybrid suite of tools allows you to do, is to draw on whatever material you need and whatever process technology you need to be able to really you know, embed this stuff and make it functional. And, and so if we're looking at like, so you man, managed to say, okay, you've got a wide variety of heads there. They do a lot of different things, a lot of different CNC machines. So who are the people like, okay, apart from the Blisk repair, you know, the aerospace MRO guys, who are the people buying your machines or what kind of companies are using them? Anybody who has a really complex process chain and they can simplify it. And I'll give you an example. A lot of the repair stuff leads naturally into, hey, because I'm using DED, I can vary the composition of what I put down. So whatever wore away or was weak or it was subject to corrosion, let's put down a higher performing material in that same spot and increase the longevity of the parts. So a lot of the parts we work on, we're tripling the lifetime, right? Double to triple the lifetime normal. Sometimes we get up to four times, but, and usually we're only adding metal to a small percentage, right? Single digit percentage of the surface area. So edges and corners and anything that has a tendency to wear. But once you realize, hey, I can't just, you know, I'm not just going to rebuild this as it was. I'm going to rebuild it better. Then you go back for all of your new parts and say, actually, we're going to build them this way to begin with because we get three times the life out of it for a very small incremental cost. We've got a tooling insert here that the edges, you know, to triple its lifetime, adding those edges, fully burdened cost is $13. Oh, wow. So if you're already spending, because it's less than 10 minute cycle time and it does deposition, finishing, and inspection. If you're already, it's already in a CNC machine and you're already going to spend the 60, 80, 90, whatever it is to build this little base insert. Why not add, you know, spend the extra incremental $13 to triple its lifetime? It's a no no brainer. That sounds very, very compelling uh, on a lot of components, especially what I like about this. Okay. So these hard facing, you're also talking about like hard facing, right? So you're talking about hard facing components in the hard facing market. Absolutely. I, I could imagine that something like a, I don't know, some dump truck thing or something, that could be really expensive to replace. So it's not only the cost of the part, it's the, the cost of this gigantic dump truck being out of service or the cost of like taking off the back of the dump truck or whatever, or taking off the entire, this tool, not being able to use it. And, and so actually the repair time or the replacement time, the downtime, yeah, that would make this really easy. I mean, I can't get a guy to take a you know, front off of anything and then replace it for under 13 bucks, you know? And what you've said is exactly right. And then as you go more remote, right, you're at a drilling station out in wherever, or you've got a pump functioning at the bottom of just some crazy something, then it just magnifies the whole need. And the ability to avoid having to strip it down and take it out of service is so, it just builds that business case and makes it very compelling. Yeah. So then, uh, then you're also talking about like really hard materials, like a tungsten carbide, stellite, that kind of thing. And that's, and that's yes. also possible, right? Because that's yep. already been possible with like laser cladding and, and other processes as well for a while, right? So, Did, have, can you do ceramics yet? Or is that? So, we've not focused a lot of effort on ceramics. We have done a little bit. Primarily, we've been in this metal matrix composite space. Right. Makes sense. And we, we now deposit lots of things that are so hard. You have two, two things. One, we can no longer finish them with normal milling. <laughs> and so right. now we're doing grinding as well. 
So you can, it, so we were the first to, to do a hybrid grinder where we did deposition and grinding in a dedicated grinding machine. And now we've been modularizing a grinding module so that you can not only do milling, which is often the case, your base material you'd prep with milling because it's faster and, and you know, lower cost. Then you deposit these hard edges and then you change in the grinding module to be able to finish them. Could, could you like do a spark erosion? Or do you already have one of the head? To you, you certainly could. Yeah, we don't do spark erosion right now in the same setup. Fair. We've had a number of requests, but we don't do it now. <laughs> but to yeah. me, that's what hybrid manufacturing is. It's making these things interchangeable enough that you can, right? If the market demand is there for it, by all means, do it. But now, but now okay, just from a strategic thing, I love the idea that you're modular and you work with everything. But isn't that also kind of a little bit of an inhibition because you can't go somewhere to a trade show or you can't like promote the idea of this is like the hybrid manufacturing one or whatever, this is the thing you need. It's just more like we'll build you a solution. Is that slowing you down maybe? or It, it is. It adds to the complication of maturing for sure. To me, this is an economy of scope play. And where do we see success in economy of scope? Well, in the Adobe Creative Suite, where you've got something that handles right, Illustrator for vector graphics and Photoshop and Premiere, and all of a sudden they all work together. If they only had one product, I don't think they would have had nearly the success that they have, right? The Office Suite from Microsoft, same story. So we see this, we've seen this play out in a number of ways. Obviously, this is a new variation on that same theme. But to me, that's the difference. And we have lots of people who come to us now because we can do, you know, we talked about metal matrix composites and other very hard materials. How do you test for cracking, which is the failure mode on most of these? Yeah, there, <laughs> yeah. there are a variety of ways. The cheapest, easiest way is dye penetrant, which is used extensively, but it's very hard to digitally capture that. And so eddy current inspection is hands down our favorite way to check for cracking. And we can do it in the same machine and it's very fast. So in 20 or 30 seconds, you can check everything you've just deposited all around the edges of these parts. And you know, right? It's no longer, and I love this discussion between an operator and, you know, somebody, you know, that's running an additive machine. Um, how do you know this part's good? And they respond, well, the last part was good. Yes, that is exactly. And the tone of voice makes me want to ask every time, is that a question or yeah. a statement? And, but that's the reality. We've given people tools to not just create shapes, which is what everybody sees on the outside, but to create microstructure. And we have never trained people, you know, outside of welding long joints in general. We don't train people for both. And we don't give them the tools to assess it. So what do you do? You say, oh, what are you going to use it for? Oh, uh, well, if it breaks, it's not that big a deal, right? Or if it's serious, it's like, oh, you better CT scan that. And, da, da. and I love CT scan, right? I love all these scanning techniques. This is not a um, picking holes in, in tools. This is amalgamating the, the most sensible suite of capabilities that you need for your application that allows you to do it. So now people need DED, but they have to have the eddy current if they're going to sell this thing with confidence because they're in a crack prone environment. And so that to me drives it until this thing gets completely finished and it's good and it's installed somewhere else, nobody makes any money or any output or any progress or any food or whatever it is that it's contributing to. And I've been a part of the additive community for two decades. I love it. I love all the seven families. But I also feel like there's a little bit of a myopia where additive feels like it's driving all the value and it's certainly an enabler. 
No question about that. Does it change the way we do? Ab yes, absolutely. Has it leapt in the public's imagination in a way that enables far more investment than we've ever seen? Yes. Congratulations. It's, we've done wonderful things as an industry, and I, I, I celebrate those. But now as the rubber meets the road in trying to get true, full adoption, especially on materials that require post-processing, the nitty-gritty details of how to actually pull this off rise closer and closer to the surface. And we have to deal with them or else we're not going to get this full widespread adoption that we all hope for. Yeah, okay. But the corollary to this is somebody makes like, let's say, uh, a cheaper variant that only that doesn't do any of the fancy cool stuff, that just makes parts like the Cheese Whiz DED that we all know and love from a decade ago. And it's really easy to integrate in, I don't know, like a Haas vertical machining center or something. It's just one off-the-rack product, and they capture lots of market share, and they just do all of the dumb stuff, and they get a lot of volume. No problem. To me, that's not the market I serve. Okay, okay. So you're really and going for the high-end stuff. About half of our systems end up in Haas machines. Okay, okay. Yeah, okay, okay. Which is good, because they don't really have a, much of an additive play right now, right? <laughs> It's true. It's <laughs> just in case you want to sell and be in Formula One. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so what, but, um, where do you see this all going in the next like five, 10 years, if you can vision out that far? Smart products is where, that, to me, that is a sweet spot for additive that is, we're just beginning to see emerge as, as viable, as demonstrable. But that ultimately is where I see additive having a very unique play. Because until we can mimic biological growth, additive is the, the next best thing from my perspective. Right. To lay it down, put the sensors in it, and then still be building exactly. the thing. And, and dialing back from that, all of the gains that we're making because of geometric complexity only, or because of composition change only, great. But it's bundling all of the value propositions, if you will, from all of the different families of additive that I think yields in the long run smart, intelligent products with embedded sensing capability that allow you to, to leverage them and interact with them more like companions, right? More like coworkers than we ever have. And then what, what do you hope you guys will be in this specifically as your company? Or what do you hope you be the chief enabler for this for bridges or, or for large products? Or where, where do you hope to be? We trust that our users and customers have even deeper insight to the needs of individual applications, and we want to be there for them, right, to support them. We've already broadened the scope of, of tools that are available by, you know, we would consider two or three orders of magnitude. Merging additive and subtractive was originally our business, right? That was our goal, and on our letterhead, you know, we, we specifically said our goal is to bring the subtractive world into the additive space. We have fulfilled that along with a whole bunch of other people, but we were the ones that really pushed this out and said, this works in mainstream CNC manufacturing. And we're thrilled to have had lots of people join that bandwagon. And for me, the next natural place is to bring inspection to that same process chain. And then going beyond that is intermingling between the material sets that you need different sets of physics for, right? Multi-physics AM, multi-physics inspection, all of those things have to, become, have to come together to achieve this real vision. That sounds, that sounds very, very, very compelling. 
Thank you so much, Dr. Jason Jones, for being on the 3D Pod today. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. And thank you for being here today, Max, as well. Yeah, this was a fun and fascinating discussion as always, Joyce. Thanks for hosting. Yeah, Yeah, anytime, anytime. And thank you for listening. I'm Anna Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. Have a great day. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.